Come on now, who's excited to be here today? Make a little bit of noise, excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. So good to see you guys. If this is your first time or first time in a long time, welcome to Barrel Life Church. A lot of things have changed and that are happening. They're really, really cool. Uh, we are actually one church in three physical locations. We have a campus in Ashland. Pastor Derek, man, God's using him amazingly. We have a campus in Grayson. And Pastor Aaron preached last Sunday right here, the Grayson campus pastor. Come on, Grayson. It's good for your campus pastor. Come on, everybody. But Pastor Aaron did an amazing job last week. And then we here have our Moorhead campus. And so, man, thank you so much for being here in person with us. Hey, just a real quick announcement. Next week, you heard everybody have already talked about it. I don't know if you know, but it's a little secret. It's Easter next week. And so Easter is like Super Bowl Sunday, which I think every Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday for the church, right? Because we serve a risen Savior. We don't have to go to a grave to worship someone or a tomb. He's alive. And so I think we should come in here excited with passion, excited to, to worship him. And, but next Sunday is a very important Sunday because um, not only do we celebrate the resurrection of our our Lord and Savior, but it's the best day. In fact, the number one day that your family members, your friend or your coach or your classmate, your teammate, your sorority sister, your fraternity brother, whoever it may be, this is the day that most of the time they will come to church with you in person. And so I want to encourage you. We have seven services all the way from Ashland here at the Moorhead. I mean, if you want to get up, we have three services at our Moorhead campus. So if you want to get up and do the sunrise service with the family somewhere and then come and catch it, man, that, that'll be awesome. For some of you, you're like me, you don't even know what sunrise looks like. <laughs> like what is sunrise service? It's okay. We have a 12 o'clock service for you as well. So, hey, you find your service, find your friends, invite them to come. Come with them. We're going to have a great, great time. And really quick, just want to say this to shout out, is that the last... Last uh, uh, Sunday, so on, our, on April the 24th, uh, one of my mentors and coaches, Bob Russell, is going to be here. Bob Russell is a senior, was the senior pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville. If you ever drive to Louisville and you look on the right side, you see that massive, big old building over there. That was a church he, he pastored from 20 people up to 25,000 people. And for the last two years, he's been a mentor and a coach, invited me to his home. We had dinner with his family and uh, uh, just poured into my life. And so I said, I said, Bob, I said, Pastor Bob, would you come preach at Bear Life Church? Come Come on, man, I know you're retired, but come on, you, you, you're still fiery preacher with the gospel. And he said, absolutely. So we picked a day, and he's going to be here the Sunday after Easter. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this dude. You don't want to miss him. He may be retired, but he is on fire for the Lord and preaching uh, all over the place. So please come and, and support and be here for him. It's going to be an amazing, amazing Sunday. So anyway, if you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 19 today. John chapter 19. We're in this series called Cross Equals Love. And in this series, we've been going through the seven statements of Jesus. I've loved this. This has been so good for me and edified my faith to just studying. And, and I feel like this series is more like a Bible study to walk through, more than like sermons that you'll be preaching. And so I want to encourage you to continue just to study the Scriptures and jump in the Scriptures. And today we're going to look at the sixth statement of Jesus, and we'll end it on Easter Sunday with the seventh. So let me give you some context real quick and some background information. And so 1,500 years before Jesus came on the scene, around-ish about, the Israelites were in bondage to the Egyptians, right? You may have heard the story. You watch the movie The Mummy, and, and all of a sudden they've been in bondage for 400 years. And God found Moses on the back of a desert, spoke to Moses through a burning bush. That's kind of fascinating. That's crazy, y'all. I mean, you should read the Bible. It's unbelievable. Spoke to Moses through a burning bush. And what does he basically say? Moses, I heard my people. Go and let my people go. Go get my people. Now, what's crazy about this is that, is that Moses is going back to his step-grandfather, Pharaoh, 
because Pharaoh's daughter, if you remember, raised uh, Moses up and he ran. That's another whole story we'll, we'll get to later. But he, here's, here's the point I want to get to. Is that if you remember, there were 10 plagues of Egypt. Remember, if you watched the movie The Mummy, some of you watched the movie The Mummy, 10 plagues. And every plague went after a god of the Egyptians. Every single one went after a god. You know, there was the gnats and there was the, the, water, the river turned to blood. But it was the last one that really got them. And it was the sun god. It was the god Ra. They believed that the power of Ra was and dwell in the Pharaoh and pass down to his child, his firstborn, his son. So God says, I'm about to do away with all the little G gods in Egypt. So here's what's gonna happen, Moses. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna take the firstborn, the firstborn son of every wild beast, of every human in Egypt. I will show them that I am the one true God. However, I'm graceful and I'm merciful. So here's what I want you to do. Moses, I want you to go find a baby lamb about a year old, no defects, spotless, no problems, no limps, no nothing. I want you to sacrifice that lamb and I want you to take a hyssop branch and I want you to dip that hyssop branch in blood and I want you to, to put it over the doorpost of every single household who wants to be spared, wants to be protected. And when the death angel comes, he will watch this pass over your house. I've preached on this several times, but what, he will pass over your house until this day, Jews this week will celebrate the Passover to remember that 1,500 years before Jesus came on the scene, how God pulled the Israelites out of bondage and that he spared them and he passed over them house. Now, I believe that if an Egyptian would have heard that, and they would have done the same thing. God would have spared their son or their firstborn as well because they were obedient to his word. Well, you can imagine. Mom, you, you put it on the blood on the doorpost and you're waiting and you're hoping that this is true and they're hoping that it doesn't touch your son. And the next morning you wake up and you hear weeping and wailing all through Egypt because the firstborn of every child and every beast, of every parent, of every beast was gone, especially Pharaoh's son. Now, this was a big shot to the sun god of Pharaoh because they thought Pharaoh would pass down to his son the power of the sun god Ra, which he about to show there's no such thing. There's no real God. I am the one true God. And finally, Pharaoh lets him go. And you know the story. Moses walks across on dry ground, splits the Red Sea, goes up onto the mountain, brings back down the Ten Commandments. But God said, Moses, I wanted you to do something. Every year, I want you to remember that I brought you out of bondage. And I want you to celebrate what's called the Passover. The Passover is something you're gonna do every single year to celebrate what I did and how I protect you. But also, every single year, you're gonna bring a one-year-old lamb into the temple area on the 10th day, into the city on the 10th day of Nisan. For four days, I want you to watch that lamb. I want you to tie that lamb to a stake and I want you to watch it. I want you to watch carefully to see if there's any blemishes, any spots, if anything's wrong with it. Now, I don't know what would be wrong with the baby lamb. Maybe it's bad, wrong, I don't know. That's a bad joke, I know, it's a bad joke. Trust me, it's just a coffee. But, you know, maybe, maybe I want you to, maybe it has a limp, maybe it has a cough, maybe it's frail, maybe it's weak, but for four days, I want you to watch. This is found in Exodus chapter 12. I want you to watch that lamb for four days. And then after the fourth day on twilight, which would be at 3 p.m., at 3 p.m., that's what is considered twilight, I want you to sacrifice that lamb. And I want you to know that every family brings their lamb to remind them, one, what I've done for them, but two, to forgive their sins for the entire year has been covered by the blood of that lamb until the next year. 
And so what's Moses do? He implements this all over the land, and that's called Passover. And every time at Passover, you would raise a little baby lamb up. You would bring the one-year-old spotless. You would bring it into the city. You would watch it for four days, make sure there's nothing wrong. You would hand it over as your payment for your penalty of your sin, and you would give it to the priest. The priest, therefore, would sacrifice it at twilight, which would have been 3 p.m. They would walk out, and they would blow a horn called a sofer. And when that horn was blown, all the Israelites realized that the lamb was slain, and he would come up, and he would say a Hebrew word called Hassah, which means it's accomplished. It's completed. It's fulfilled. It's finished. And then you would go back home and then you would wait and you raise up another baby lamb to its one-year-old and you would bring it right back. And watch this. This happened for 1,500 years. Now Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus, as a little boy, celebrated every Passover meal. He did everything that was required by the law. He did every single thing. And now it's the last Passover. It's called the Last Supper that we know in the text. The last Passover meal that he's about to eat with his disciples. And so this is the night before he is crucified and he's, he's with his disciples. You know what happens. He washes the disciples' feet and he breaks bread and all this stuff. But he basically institutes a new covenant. He takes a cup of, of the third cup, the cup of wine, and he says, this is a new covenant between God and my people. It's gonna be with my blood. Now they're going, what do you mean? There's not a new covenant, there's the old covenant. We've been sacrificing for 15 years. We know that there could be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. So every year, that's why we have the Passover. We brought our baby lamb. We give it to the Lord, the priest. The priest sacrifice it. Jesus is like, wait, 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 I'm gonna issue a new covenant. There's gonna be a new blood. There's gonna be a new sacrifice. There's gonna be one sacrifice, the everlasting sacrifice. That's gonna take place. They didn't understand it at the time. What do you mean? So Jesus takes the juice, he breaks the bread, and he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. There he prays, and you remember what happened? Judas comes with the entourage, they arrest Jesus. He's handed over to Herod and to Pilate. They find him innocent with no blemish. He's completely guilt-free. And because they're allowed to release one person, you know this, if you haven't, this is kind of catching you up. If you missed this series, you please go back and watch it online. They can release one prisoner, and everybody shouted, release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. So at 9 a.m., they nailed, the Bible tells at 9 a.m., we clearly see this, the Gospel of John, at 9 a.m., they nailed Jesus to the tree, they, they, to the cross, they raised him up, and from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. to twilight, it's completely dark. It's not an eclipse, it's not a sandstorm, it's something takes place, there's complete darkness over the land. And then at that moment, we get the last two statements at around 3 p.m., the last two statements of Jesus. We'll look at one today, and we'll finish the one next week on Easter Sunday. And so that's very important that you understand that context as we go into this next statement, because in John chapter 19, Jesus says this, verse 28. After this, I'm using the New American Standard Translation, and, and so you can follow it. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been, now this is a very important word, accomplished. Now we see that in English, accomplished. Now, unless you're a Greek student and you study the Greek text, that word accomplished is the word tetelestai. It means multiple things we're gonna look at in just a moment. But the English translators for the New American Standard Bible uses the word accomplished. Keep reading. In order that the scriptures would be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. Pastor Aaron preached on that statement last week. Our campus pastor at Grayson did an amazing job. And so he talked about that. If you missed it, you can go back and watch it. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a branch, on a hyssop, a hyssop branch. That's kind of fascinating. They brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus received the sour wine, and here it is, here it is, he says his, his, his sixth statement that we're gonna look at today. Look what he said. He says, it is finished. 
And then he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And we'll look at that verse next week. He said, it is finished. Now, here's what you got to understand. That word, it is finished, it's the same word as accomplished, to telestai. The English translator for the New American Standard says, when Jesus said it was accomplished, he said, it is finished on the cross. The New Living Translation says, when Jesus says, it's, he said everything was finished, and then at the end, he says, it is finished on the cross. When you look at the New English Translation, it used the word completed. When Jesus said that everything was completed on the cross, he says, it is completed. But if you look at the in literal Greek New Testament, they translate the word as accomplished. When Jesus knew that everything was accomplished on the cross, he said, it is accomplished. So here's the question, which one is it? All of them, every one of them, because they all have the same similar meaning when you understand the text. And when you wanna read the text and understand the text, if you're gonna be a serious Bible student, you always have to ask yourself this question when you read the Bible. What would this have meant to the original hearer? If you're gonna study the book of Genesis and talk about the creation and go about the Noah's Ark and the flood all the way through the book of Genesis, you have to ask yourself the question, what would this have meant to me if I was there? Not knowing what I know now, not knowing all that we know on this side of the cross, because see, a lot of times we wanna put our feelings, our emotions, our thoughts into it. So whether you're studying Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, if you're gonna study Revelation, you have to study it with the lens of what would that have meant around 90 AD when the apostle John wrote it. Not with the nuclear warfare and stuff that's going on today and helicopters flying, no, no, what, how, how would they would have perceived this? Because you have to put it in context to really expound, it's called exegesis, to expound on the text itself. We gotta let the text interpret the text. Not my emotions, not my feelings, not what I think. So if you were standing at the cross and you were there, and a lot of scholars believe that Jesus' native tongue would have been Hebrew. So he would have spoken Hebrew and then it's been translated into Greek. But if he was hanging on the cross and he would, let's say he spoke Hebrew, you know what he would have said? Hassal, which is the equivalent to tetelestai in Greek. So if you were sitting around and you heard the word scream, tetelestai, what would you have thought as a first century Jew? Well, there's three common ones. One, you'd have thought, first of all, your mind would have went to a servant and a master. See, when the master gave a servant a task to do, the servant went out and they filled the task, whether it was go tend the sheep, whether it go plow the field, whether it was go, you know, clean my room, whatever, whatever, whatever you needed, whatever, they, they would come back to their master once the task was completed and they would say, to tell us, What does that imply? The task is completed. I've done everything you've asked me to do. So you would have thought, maybe he's, what is he saying to a servant, to a master here? What does tetelestai mean? Maybe you're more of a, a business mind or money mind or numbers guy. You would have thought of an accountant or a banker or someone who, who owes a debt. Because when you had a debt to be paid, once you paid off the debt, say you went to the bank or you went to someone and you had an agreement to buy something and you paid it off, they would take the certificate of debt and they would write tetelestai on that certificate, which means paid in full. You have no balance left. What you bought is what you pay. So when Jesus says to tell us that, and you're an accountant, you're a banker, you're a mindset, and you're going, what was paid in full? What does it mean that was paid in full? Because that might have been how you would interpret it, paid in full. Maybe you really study the priestlyhood and what the priest did, and your mind went back to 3 p.m. when the horn would be blown and the priest would come up after sacrificing a lamb and he would scream to his life, Hassan, 
which means it has been performed. It has been fulfilled. It has been completed. It has been accomplished. The lamb has been slain. Maybe your mind went to that. But these were the three most common, one of the three most common ways that people use this Greek word to telestop. But here's the question I would ask. What is it? What did Jesus mean when he says it is finished? It is accomplished. It is completed. It is fulfilled. What is it? See, when you, when you, when you see the word it is finished, what did, he, what did he complete? What did he finish? What is the word it there? What is he describing when he says the word it? And so that's what I'm gonna share with you for the next few moments, what it is. Now that's all background. Y'all ready for the sermon? So let's go. All right, here we go. Here's the first thing that it is. It is the sacrifice is complete. It's finished. The sacrifice, the last, the final, the sacrifice, the complete sacrifice has been 100% completed. Now let's go back. 1,500 years prior to this, what would happen? You would find a one-year baby lamb, no spots. You would bring it on the 10th day of Nisan into the city. You would present it and watch it for four days tied to a stake. Make sure there was no blemish, no fault, nothing wrong with it. After the fourth day, you'd hand it over to the priest, and at twilight, at 3 p.m., the priest, therefore, would sacrifice that lamb. That was The sacrifice has been completed. It's always been a temporary system waiting for a real sacrifice to finalize it. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He's saying this, the sacrifice has been complete. Because isn't it fascinating that Jesus comes riding on Palm Sunday on a colt on the 10th day of Nisan as the Lamb of God enters into the city to be tested for the next four days on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. The religious people, they test him. They try him. They try to trip him. They can't find any fault in him. They can't find anything wrong with him. And to be double sure of it, they hand him over to Herod and hand him over to Pilate. And what do they say? This man is innocent. There is no blemish. There is no system. There's no sin. There's nothing he has done wrong. He's completely innocent. Isn't it really amazing that the Bible tells us at 9 a.m. they nailed Jesus to a tree when they brought the lamb into the temple to get ready for the preparation. Isn't it amazing that at 3 p.m., when the lamb is supposed to have been slain, at twilight, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. He's the last lamb. Remember John the Baptist when he baptized him? He said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Folks, it is completed. It's completed. That's not by coincidence. God set this whole system up, everything in place, waiting for this very day that his lamb, the final lamb, the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world would be the last lamb slain, the last sacrifice for the blood for sin because there could be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And what's so amazing is that when the priest sacrificed the lamb, they blew the horn and then they would scream, Hasa! Isn't it amazing at 3 p.m.? I wonder if people heard the horn blow. And then the Lamb of God on the cross said what the priest would say when he came up out of the temple. It is finished. 
Listen to this, I love in Hebrews chapter nine, verse 12, it says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once and for all time and secured our redemption forever. Keep reading verse chapter 10, I love this one. But our high priest offered himself up to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for watches all times. It's the last sacrifice, it's over. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. You know what's so fast about this? Jesus was the lamb, Jesus was the high priest, and Jesus was God. All at the same moment. The lamb laid down his own life. No one could take his life from him. He lays it down himself. The high priest came out and said, it's finished. I'm about to give up my spirit. We'll learn about that next week. And then God raised him from the dead. He's all of those. At twilight, at 3 p.m., the last sacrifice was completed. But not only was the last sacrifice completed, here's the second one, the work is accomplished. The work has been accomplished. This is the work of the servant. Jesus said, I've come to do my Father's will. I've accomplished his work. John chapter four, verse 34, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, watch this, and to accomplish his work. Now, what work did God give his son? What work would he have accomplished on the cross when he says, it is accomplished, it is completed, it is fulfilled, it is finished? What work did he complete? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter eight, Verse three, it says, the law of Moses could not save us because our sinful nature, but God put into effect a different system, a different strategy, a different plan to save us. What was that plan? He sent his own son in a human body like ours, because he's God in the flesh, except that ours are sinful. Jesus wasn't. Remember, he's spotless, he's blameless, he's sinless. It had to be. Jesus had to be sinless to fulfill the last sacrifice because the lamb could not have any spots or blemish within him. God destroyed sin's control over us by giving us his son. What was that? A sacrifice for our sins. He did this so, watch this, that the requirement of the law, the requirement of the law would be fully accomplished for you and for me. What did the law demand? The law demanded for us to be punished for our sin. The law demanded it, but God sent his son to take our place and to accomplish his purpose for our life through requal. Listen to me, the law cannot save you. You ask people all the time, if you ask somebody, why should you go to heaven? The, the, here's what they normally say, because I, and they say they've done something. Why, should you, why would God let you into heaven? Because uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty good person. Why should God let you in heaven? Uh, I go to church. I go to the early service. You know, like, okay, like, okay. You know, why would God let you in heaven? Because, you know, I try to treat people kind and treat people the way I wanna be treated and do good deeds. Do you see what I'm trying to say there? Everything you just said is action and works based on your goodness. The law can't save you. The law points to you that you need a savior. The law just lets you know you can't even keep the law. You can't even keep the basics of the law. So the law points to you to let you know that you need a savior. And so many of you, listen, some of you here today, you're trying to earn your favor with God by your attendance. Well, if I just go to church, then maybe God will be pleased with me. If I just read my Bible, maybe God will be pleased with me. If I just walk out, maybe God, what makes God pleased with me? Because I showed up, dropped a 20 in a bucket when it passed by. Like what? I'm, you're trying to make God like, okay, God, I mean, if I show up, if I, if I invite somebody for Easter, I get double credit in heaven. Yes, right, I, I, I gotta figure out. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to keep works to get right with God. There's no work you can do to make you right with God. That's why God sent his son. Jesus is what makes you right with him, not your works. You'll never be good enough. Maybe some of you should go, oh goodness, cause dude, it's hard trying. 
you'll never be good enough. And God knew that. So guess what? The work for you trying to make your way back to God, it's been completed. The work that needs to be done to make you right with God, it's over. It's finished. It's been fulfilled. The only thing now that makes you right with God is when you put your faith and trust in his son and believe. Believe that he did fulfill the law, that he did exactly what he said he would do. What did he accomplish? What did he, what did he, what did he accomplish for me and you? That leads to the third thing is this, that your debt has been paid. Remember he said to tell us that, you'd have heard that, you'd have thought, hey, there's been a debt paid, some debt has been, your debt has been paid. If you're an accountant, you would write to tell us that, your debt has been paid, your taxes have been paid in full. If you were a, 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 a banker and you had a note, you would write to tell us that on the note, hey, you, the, the, the house you bought, the buggy you bought, the mule you bought, the farm you bought, to tell us that, it's been paid in full. But one of my favorite ones is that if you've been arrested and you were thrown in jail, they would take a certificate called a certificate of debt and they would write down all your transgressions. They write down all the things you did wrong while you were placed in prison and they would write down the consequences of what you owed because of it. They would take that certificate of debt and they would walk to your jail cell and they would take a hammer and they would nail that certificate to your cell so that when everybody walked by, they looked what your crimes were and how you paid them and what's your restitution to make them to fix them, to get them back. So everyone would walk by and go, oh, they look what they did. Mm, look what they did. Kind of what y'all do on Facebook. <laughs> anyway, oh, look what they did. And I, you, you'd make your list of what people did. But you know what happened when you served your time? When your time was up, they would take the certificate down. They would hand you the certificate and say, now take it to the judge. And you would go before the judge and the judge would sit there and they would look at you and they would say, they would list all the things that you've done wrong. And they said, you've paid for your time and your crime. And the judge would write to tell us that, which means it has been paid for. You have paid your time in due. And you would carry this around. You would put it in your billfold, your back pocket, kind of like when you see the game morning coming when you don't when you have your fishing license, you're like, where's that sucker at? And you're trying to find, you put the rod down, you know what I'm saying? You're trying to hurry, they've already caught you by now. And you get your fishing license out, you say, I carry it with you right here it is. I've paid for it, I've already got it. Because what happens is when people see you out of jail, it's like, I heard about you, you're out of jail. Did you pay for your crimes? You go, yes, I did, yes, I did. And you pull out your certificate of debt and say right there, to tell us that it's been paid in full. No more double jeopardy. I can never, ever be tried for these crimes again because the judge has released me. I'm about to have a spell up here. Look up here, Colossians chapter two. I love this. This is so good. And this was worth you coming this morning. And you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins, the uncircumcisions of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our treasures. And then look what he says. I love what Paul says. He canceled your debt certificate. He canceled the record of your debt and he stood against us with its legal demands. That's what was on it. And what did he do? He set them aside and he nailed it to the cross. That means this, watch this, that every time that Satan reminds you of your sin, you remind him of the cross, that your sins have been nailed to the cross. That's what tetelestai means. And you will be reminded your whole life, you will be reminded of the sins and things that happen in your life, and that's why you look to the cross, that he has nailed your certificate, my certificate has been nailed to the cross. So when they're thrown back up at me, I'm gonna throw you to the cross. They've been paid for, honey. Right there it says it. So now you understand when Jesus says to tell us stop, when he says it's finished, it's been paid for. Now you know what's been paid for, your sin. Because every time you sin, your debt racks up. 
Your debt goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It just takes one sin to separate you from God. And every time you sin, your debt rides up, rides up. And here's the reality. You're bankrupt, bro, because you can't pay for it. There's nothing you could ever do to pay back the debt that you owe God. And God knew that. That's why the Bible says, even yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid for your debt. All you gotta do is receive it. All you gotta do is receive the certificate that says to tell us thou on it. How do I receive that certificate? You believe. You put your faith and trust in him. Not by your works, not by your goodness. You'll never be, your goodness can't pay back that debt. It's your belief in Jesus Christ. What kind of belief do you have? Some of you say, well, I believe in God, but do you have the right belief? Even the devil believes in God, but do you have the right belief? A belief that means this, I believe something with everything within me that radically changes my life and I don't give a rip about the consequences. That's what a belief is. If you say you believe in Jesus and you haven't changed your life and your life has not been changed, you got the wrong belief. Because when you believe in Jesus, you can't stay the same. It radically changes your life. He has canceled the debt for you. I love what Paul writes in Colossians. He says this, he says, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. How? How did he do this? He bought me. He purchased me. He purchased my freedom. He purchased back my sin debt. He canceled that debt. How? For the forgiveness of my sin. So when he's on the cross, he says, it's completed. It's fulfilled. It's finished. He means it. There's nothing else that has to be done to make your way, to make you right with God. And you know what I love about this? You know, when you, when you study the, the, the original language, and I'm not, def, I'm not even close to being Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that. You have this good studies tools that help you understand that stuff and get it. And when you start looking, one of the things you look in the Greek text, because the Greek, man, it's so much more complicated than Hebrew. Hebrew is way easier than Greek, because Greek has 34 meanings to one word. And you gotta figure, it's really difficult how do you work through it. But when it comes to it, you gotta understand, how is this one word written? Is it in the past? Passive voice or active voice? What tense? Is it in the perfect tense or not? Is it third person, first person, second person? What predicate is it? Some of you sit there going, well, you've lost me, and your English people going, oh, he's speaking my language. He's speaking my language. Uh, I can't stand English. But anyway, anyway, but listen, because I'm just not good at it. This word here is in the perfect tense. That's very important for you to know. Why? Because the perfect tense means this. It's something that's happened in the past Watch this, but the effects are felt in the present. That's what the perfect tense means. It's something that happens. So when he said to tell us I, it's something that's happening now, but it has everlasting results in our life. And folks, you are fulfilling that today just by being here. And when God opens up your heart and you give your life to him, watch this, that perfect tense to tell us I that had that event in the past, watch this, has everlasting effect on you for the rest of your entire life. So when you get that and understand that Jesus wasn't the screaming accountant word or servant word, he was screaming something from the cross that you and I would know that it has been paid for, that it has been purchased, that it is completed, that it is finished. I love this. I usually don't do a lot of quotes, but this is a quote from Pastor Erwin Lutzer. He, Lutzer, he, he actually was the pastor of the Moody Bible Church at the near the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. D.L. Moody was one of my heroes from way, way back in the day, just listening to reading the story, how God took his old shoes salesman and turned him into one of the greatest evangelists that our country and the world has ever seen. And so the Moody Bible Institute was founded and there's a Moody Bible Church and Pastor Aaron Lutzer used to be the pastor of the Moody Bible Church. Here's what he says. I wanna read this quote to you. This is so good. He says, this means, this means, to tell us that, this means that my sins are on Jesus, not on me. Yes, there are sins within me, but not on me. Man, that'll preach. Whoa, that is so good. My sinful nature keeps luring me to sin and even in my best moments, my works are tainted with selfish motives. 
but legally, I'm accepted on the basis of the merit of Jesus, and figuratively, I have a new set of clothes, a clear record in heaven. The righteousness of Jesus has been forever credited to my account. And what I don't want you to miss there, he says this, I may have sin in me, but I ain't got sin on me. Jesus took my sin off of me and put it on the cross and nailed it to the cross. That should be encouraging to us as followers of Jesus. We're still gonna blow it, and we're still gonna mess up, and we still confess our sins for our fellowship with the Lord, but my sin have been nailed to the cross. And we should never get, ever get over that. And so this, who would ever thought that in such a small little Greek word, so much power and meaning for us today. And we wonder why Jesus said that word. And we, and we see the impact that it has even on our lives, which leads me to the last and the final thing that it is on the cross, that it was finished was the promise has been fulfilled. The promise that God gave the world was fulfilled. In fact, the Bible tells that Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation. Before he got even spoke anything to an existence, he knew oh, this was gonna happen. And we see in Genesis, in chapter one and two and, and three, that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they hid themselves because they realized they were naked and God said, who told you this? And sin entered into that world and at that very moment that sin entered the world, that is the theological answer to all of our problems. Because sin entered the world, people that we love are gonna die. Because sin entered the world, people are gonna hurt people. Because sin has entered into the world, bad things happen. Now I know you don't wanna hear that when we're going through those circumstances. When people ask me about that, why do these bad things, the theological answer is because sin. And it might not even be the sin that you did or that they did, it's just sin in general has warped the world and it has warped us. And so most people overlook this, but the Bible says that God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skin. How did he do that? He sacrificed them. Because without this, the first sacrifice, was at that very moment, because there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And then God turns to the woman and said, here's gonna be your problem. God turns to the man and said, here's gonna be your problem. And then he lets the enemy know, Satan know. In Genesis chapter three, verse 15, is the first time we see the gospel presented, all the way back in Genesis chapter three. He said, she's gonna have a descendant, her seed, and you're gonna be at war with each other, with the enemy. But I want you to know something, Satan. You're gonna strike his heel, and you're gonna think you took him out but he's gonna crush your head and render you useless. And Paul writes, oh death, where is your sting? Because Jesus took the sting out of death when he gave his life up, and he fulfilled the promise. He promised the Messiah would come and deliver the people. He promised that the Messiah would come through Abraham and bless the descendants for all who believe. He promised that the Messiah would come from the lineages, the bloodline of David, and he did, and he would come. He promises will be fulfilled. He promises you today that whosoever calls upon his name will be saved. It's a promise from God. And when you can look what happened 1,500 years later and how it all orchestrated on Passover week, there's no way Jesus has orchestrated this to happen at this very, it's not coincidence. When we study texts like this, that should make us run back to the Bible and increase our faith even more that the Bible is true and what God says is true. There's one villain, his name is de the devil. There's one hero, his name is Jesus. And the Bible's all about Jesus. 
And we know that, that the promise was fulfilled. We see this because in Luke chapter 24, remember the road of Emmaus when they're walking and the guys came? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus says, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's an awesome Bible study, Jesus leading that Bible study. He's gonna tell us everything written about him that was in the law of Moses, everything that was in the prophets, and I love that he mentioned this, in the Psalms, because the Psalms also point to Jesus. They must be fulfilled, accomplished, completed. Then he opened up their minds to understand the scriptures and it says, yes, it was written a long time ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in authority, Psalms 22, of his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. What's the word gonna be proclaimed? What, what are we gonna say that's finished? What's gonna say it's been completed? What is it? There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. And that promise is given today to you. That if you will repent of your sin and pay to put your faith and trust in Jesus, you will not spend eternity in hell, but you spend eternity with Jesus. That's a promise. So now let's reflect. Sixth statement on the cross. To tell us die. The sacrifice is completed. The servant's task is accomplished. Your debt has been paid. God's promise has been fulfilled. And you know why he did that? For you, for me. That's why the scripture says, who would neglect such a great salvation? I'm gonna ask you just for a moment to bow your heads. Two invitations at all of our campuses. The first one is this. And just in a moment, we're getting ready to celebrate communion together as a family. Communion is for the family of God. And so if you're here and you're just checking us out and you're just here for the first time or you haven't been in a long time, you're like, man, I don't understand about this blood and goats and sacrifices and lambs and stuff. Listen to me, you just keep coming back. I believe God's working on your life right now or you wouldn't even be here. Communion's for the family. And so if you're sitting here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, and just in the moment when we take communion, you just sit there and, and just think maybe what God is speaking into your life. But if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, then I would love to lead you to him. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the Lamb of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose you from the dead on the third day, watch this, you will be saved. Because with your, watch this, your lips can proclaim what your heart declares. And today, if your heart declares that Jesus Christ is Lord, what are you waiting on, bro? What are you waiting on? Waiting on, you don't have, you're not promised Easter. What are you waiting on? Do you believe? Do you have the right belief? And if that's you, all you need to do, right where you say, is just cry out to the Lord. And here's what I want you to do. Just say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you came for me. I believe you died for me. I believe you got up out of the grave for me. And today I repent of my sin and I put all my faith in you. Now help me follow you all the days of my life. Now listen to me, two things. If that's you and you pray that any of our campuses, just in a moment, host or your campus pastor is gonna come out and they're gonna share with you what your next steps are. Here's the second great thing is this. You get to celebrate communion today with us because it's for the family. Here's my second invitation. If you're a believer 
I'm gonna ask you right now, if you just ask the Lord to search your heart, that when we go and take the communion together, that our hearts will be right before the Lord. Ask God, say, God, is there anything between me and you? And whatever the God reveals, don't you try to argue with him. Don't try to justify it. You had the right to slam the cabinet. You had the right to say that this morning or whatever it may be. No, no, don't justify it. Don't justify your anger. Whatever the Lord, the Holy Spirit, pricks your heart with, confess it. Say, God, that's sin. You're right. I'm wrong. That's what confession means, to agree and call it what God calls it. And it's out of that overflow of our heart being right with God that we get to celebrate what Jesus celebrated on that Passover night where he issues in a new covenant. See, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. That word testament means covenant. There's an old covenant, now we have a new covenant. And that new covenant was issued with Jesus. In front of you should be a cup, or maybe in front of your chair or under your chair. And in that cup is a a wafer and some juice for us to celebrate communion together. The Apostle Paul was given this command from Jesus as he gives it to us. And when you read through commands in the Bible, just another little study, you have to ask yourself, is this command being described? They're describing what's happening? Or is it prescribed, which means you got to do this. It's a command prescribed and given to you. That's very important because I want you to see this. In verse 23, it says, "For this is the Apostle Paul, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread. He gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. This would have been the third cup of the Passover meal. He took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. So here it is. This is the new shed of blood. This represents the blood. It's not literal. It represents. This represents what they've done for 1,500 years leading up to Jesus, the sacrifice of the land. He's like, I'm the last one. You're gonna see tomorrow. It's over, bro. It's over. I'm issued a new covenant of blood. That's why we take this, why we celebrate this. This is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. Now I want you to leave that verse up just for a moment. I want you to see what it says right here. It says, do this as often as you drink it. So I just wanna clarify this. Some churches do this every single Sunday. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Some churches will do this once a month. Some churches do it once a quarter. Some do it once a year. It's not commanded to do it every single Sunday. It's described as often as you do it, when you feel led to do it, as you see fit to do it in your service together. Now, the early church, they would do this. They, every day they met, they'd take the Lord's Supper. Some took it every meal. Before they eat breakfast, they would do it. Before they eat lunch, they would do it. Before they eat supper. They did it every day, sometimes twice a day. As often as they got together, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so I just want to make sure, so here at Bear Life Church, we feel as we prepare and pray for series and sermons that, God, we feel led to do communion. This is one of the Sundays we feel led to do it, to celebrate as a family. We just wanted you to be clarified on that if you're wondering why we don't do it every single Sunday. And some do, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to let you know why you do it. Look what it says at the end of verse 26. You are pronouncing or you are announcing, you're preaching, 
You're, speaking, you're announcing publicly to the world that the Lord death, that he died, and that he got up out of the grave, watch this, until he comes again. And folks, he's coming again. He's coming again. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word. How relevant, Lord. How you would use it to speak to us today. God, that you would remind us that that sacrifice on the cross, those words were not just flippantly spoken. But Jesus, how you would have to have pushed all your way up in exhaustion to utter the word tetelestai or hasal for us today, 2,000 years later, to realize what it means, that the sacrifice is complete, the work has been accomplished, the debt has been paid, the promise has been fulfilled, and you took all of our sins and you nailed them to that cross. Thank you so much for reminding us that, reminding us today that as we celebrate this week, that we'll be mindful of Tetelestai, that it's finished, it's paid for. Thank you so much. For your name we ask Jesus, amen.